Robert. Um, today, we're very excited to have with us uh, Dr. Olfanelius. He is the uh, D- CEO of Diamond, as well as Elna Narula. She's the pr- patient recruitment lead of, and, U- and head of U.S. site relations of Diamid. Um, and just a little background um, uh, for Dr. Nelius. He has a PhD in molecular biology. He uh, is also an executive MBA with 15 uh, plus years of uh, uh, biotech industry experience, including diagnostics and drug development. His extensive experience in leading complex development projects in the biotech industry, and he's a co-author of 15 peer-reviewed publications. Diamid has an interesting history, and I'm gonna let um, Elna talk a little bit about this history. Dive Thank in. you, Monica. Sure. Yeah, no, I just wanted to mention a few words um, before Ulf gets, uh, gets into the meat of uh, what we're doing here, because I think it's wonderful and unique uh, what we're doing here. A lot of companies are not able to go back and launch another trial with probably some very um, good drug candidates that might make it if they had the opportunity again. And so I worked on our previous phase three trial in the United States. Some of you may remember if you've been involved in type one research for a long time, the DIA-PREVENT trial, we were both, it was a phase three trial in the US and in Europe, didn't quite make it. It was the same time there were three other trials going on. If you remember Tolerix, Macrogenics and the um, and our trial, none of them quite made it. Uh, I think it's wonderful that what I love about Diamond is that we never gave up on GAP, basically went back to the drawing board, figured out, wait a minute, this looking at the meta-analysis, this works maybe in some certain subgroup of patients. And then maybe there's a better way to give it. Looked at intralymphatic, giving it directly in the lymph node, which has been found to be very successful in allergy and oncology fields. And they did a lot of trials with this, um, determined it to be safe. And then just adding this extra boost of vitamin D for the immune system. Wow. That, just made sense. So I find that it's, it's thanks to the persistence, really the patience, the perseverance of our team and our leading PI, Johnny Ludvigsen, who's been big in type one diabetes and the belief in GAD for many years. Um, I think it's great that we're getting another chance here and uh, just wanted to add that. That's what I love about Diamond and think it's different and really think we've got a really ch- good chance and a really successful trial here. Yes, resilience. That's yes. the name of the game and uh, perseverance. So yes. that's excellent um, to hear that sort of backstory. Thank you very much. And I just wanted to um, see if we can, you know, now dive into the science. It's uh, really yeah. exciting to see what's going on at Diamid. Oh, yeah. And, and, uh, and thanks, Ella, for that introduction. And I only have a few slides and it will be quite high level, but then we can obviously in the questions. Uh, we can talk about more details if that's interesting. So what I'll uh, uh, what Elna said gave an introduction. So this has been a very long development project, and there's a lot of brains and a lot of sweat and a, a lot of desire and persistence has gone into this. And it started in the beginning of the 90s already uh, uh, with the discovery of GAD, and then it was taken like that. It, GAD, the recombinant protein, can be used as a therapeutic as an immunomodulatory therapeutic for type 1 diabetes. And it was taken then through the preclinical phase manufacturing all the way to phase 3 partnership at that point with uh, J&J. But then the European phase 3 trial, the uh, top line results did not show significance, P value 0.1. But we could see that there was an effect, uh, not significant, but you could, uh, and safety looked perfect. So 
when the company regained back all the rights from Johnson Johnson, we went kind of back to the drawing board and started a number of smaller pilot trials to see how do we sort of enhance the efficacy of the of the drug. Uh, and I joined the company now soon seven years ago. And at that point, when some of these smaller pilot trials started to show signals, like we could start to see the, the results from these trials. And they're like uh, Ella said, at that point, it was one trial that Professor Joni Ludwigsson had started with intralymphatic injections that looked very promising. So we started then a larger trial around that one, raised capital and started a phase 2B trial. Um, but what I will show today is what I believe is really interesting from a precision medicine uh, perspective and uh, really key to our, what I will hopefully will be our success and also the reason why we most likely failed last time. And this is also something that I think will be both very important for type 1 diabetes as a field, but also for autoimmune diseases and many other diseases as well that have this same kind of genetic association with the HLA uh, part of the genome. So I will talk about uh, autoimmune diabetes, type 1 diabetes, and our GAD uh, vaccine. So it's a recombinant protein formulated in alum. Uh, that we are using as a therapeutic vaccine and the purpose is to reprogram the immune system so that the immune system doesn't attack the insulin producing cells anymore. And what you want to do, uh, and as you probably know, in, uh, in type 1 diabetes, it's uh, you have an autoimmune destruction ongoing and at some point you the person has only 10 to 20% left of the insulin production. And that's when you get so many symptoms that you go to the doctor and you get diagnosed with type 1 diabetes. Uh, but there's an opportunity then either before diagnosis, as we know today, stage one, stage two disease, more prevention, or close to diagnosis after diagnosis to intervene and try to change the slope of the disease. So either slow down the autoimmune destruction or in the best case, halt the autoimmune, autoimmune destruction. And what you want to do here is to preserve as much as possible of the endogenous insulin production, because there's a lot of research that has shown that you can, this will lead to a quite significantly lower risk of these uh, both short and long-term complications of the disease. So this is what we want to do with our vaccine as well. Uh, and before we go into that one, uh, I think this is really the key, I believe, to uh, uh, why we believe we have found our responder patients and uh, that we are now progressing in phase three. So HLA is, as you know, it's a, it's a part of uh, on chromosome six and an area that contains a lot of genes. And these genes are, are responsible for a lot of the regulation of the immune system. Uh, and partly they code for these uh, proteins or receptors that bind to antigens and present them to T cells, and then you get an Im immune response. So both when you have a bacterial infection, a viral infection, or if you get a vaccine, COVID vaccine or influenza vaccine, it will be presented through these receptors. And even for this, I know, even for COVID vaccines and previously for influenza vaccines, you have seen that actually HLA does matter. Some individuals get more uh, like a more serious COVID disease or can get some uh, side effects depending on which HLA they have. So it's it's a very interesting thing. And I believe this will be more and more highlighted in future research and also in precision medicine. 
But for us, obviously, it's the autoimmune diseases that are interesting in type 1 diabetes that is associated to HLA. And there are a couple of specific HLA haplotypes that are the most high-risk genetic risk factors for type 1 diabetes. And it's been also shown that depending on which of those two HLA haplotypes individual have, they tend to get a different kind of, uh, like the autoimmunity looks different depending on which uh, genotype they have. So what we have then seen in uh, both meta-analyses and prospective trials is that the HLA genetics of the individual influences the effect of our vaccine. Uh, and the reason behind this is that when we first inject GAD, uh, which we now do directly into a superficial lymph node where the immune reaction happens, it's first processed by the antigen-presenting cells. So they take up the antigen, they chew it up into smaller pieces, into peptides, and these are then presented on the surface of the cells to the antigen-reactive T cells. And this receptor that binds to the, uh, to the antigen on, on the antigen-presenting cell, that is coded by the HLA uh, genes. So it makes sense, obviously, depending on what variation you have of these HLA genes, they will bind different peptides and they will bind them with different affinity. And this will lead to a different kind of immune response, depending on the variation. And we have seen then that uh, if you have a uh, the so-called HLA DR3DQ2 haplotype, that's when you respond positively to our therapeutic. If you don't carry this haplotype, you don't seem, at least as a group, these individuals don't respond uh, to our vaccine. So this sort of defines our responder group that we are now progressing in our uh, confirmatory phase three trial. And specifically, the, the, the response we see then is that these individuals get a better preservation of the endogenous insulin production compared to placebo patients they have on top of standard care. So everyone is taking obviously our own insulin and many of them have CGMs or insulin pumps. So on top of the standard care, they get an improved HbA1c compared to placebo, which is a very high bar uh, to reach. But this is what we see in our, in our uh, data. They also get an improved time, time in range and less time in hyperglycemia, which goes hand in hand with the improved HbA1c and also less glycemic variability. So you have uh, less variability based on the CGM data. And here you have like, uh, if you're interested, I can send all the like the links to the publications, but it's had been original meta-analysis when we went back into our data and we found this HLA association was published in 2020 in Diabetologia. Then the prospective phase 2B trial uh, was published in Diabetes Care 2021, where we confirmed the same thing, that we don't see an effect in the overall population. We All the effect seems to be in this HLA-specific uh, population. And then there are two, another updated meta-analysis where we see this very nice association with HbA1c and C-peptide. So the more C-peptide you preserve, the better your HbA1c is, which is really important for the whole field, I believe, to really show the importance of preserving C-peptide, that you get a direct clinical effect of that. And then also a, a um, follow-up paper on the phase 2b trial where we looked at the CGM data, where we really see the improved timing range. Uh, and now we have a uh, confirmatory 
trial, phase three trial ongoing, which is recruiting patients uh, in, in Europe. We also want to launch it in the US. There's currently a partial clinical hold by the FDA that we are uh, in dialogue with the FDA and hope to be able to start this uh, trial in US as well, where we have a lot of clinics waiting. Uh, and the trial is on a high level, quite simple. So it's a two to one randomization, three injections only one month apart in a superficial lymph node. So it's ultrasound guided injections, uh, basically uh, painless. Uh, it takes only a few minutes and then you are monitored for an hour afterwards and can go home. So no hospitalization required. And there in our, we have done 15 clinical trials in total so far. There have never been any serious adverse events uh, connected to this therapeutic, and there's no difference between placebo and active when it comes to safety. Uh, and this is now ongoing. It's a 24-month uh, trial, and the big difference here compared to the previous phase three that we uh, did in Europe is two things. It's the administration mode directly into a lymph node with a much smaller dose, which we've shown in our data seems to give a much more pronounced immune response. And the second thing, which is probably even more important, is this precision medicine approach. So we are pre-selecting the individuals that we are treating based on their HLA genetics. So we are first doing pre-screening and only selecting the ones that carry the DR3, DQ2 haplotype, uh, which in the Western world, at least, is up to 40% of type 1 diabetics carry this haplotype. So it's a quite common haplotype. And that's like, these were only my slides and I hope we can have a lot of questions, but that's just to get a brief brief introduction and really the key elements, how we have progressed the program now into phase three and hopefully that we can go all the way to market this time. Yeah, this is Thanks. very, yeah, that's fantastic. Absolutely encouraging. And we're just seeing more and more, um, you know, targeting if you wanted, uh, some people have a little bit of a, a flinch when people say endotypes, but because you know they get nervous. There's no business case if uh, if you've got the tar if you start talking about endotypes. But you know, really, if we think about how um, you know breast cancer treatment it has evolved, right? It was one size fits all twenty even twenty five years ago, and it's evolved into very it's a very precision medicine environment now with uh, you know better outcomes. And so this it seems. To me, just from my uh, observations, that this is where type one diabetes treatment is going, and uh, I think it's an excellent uh, way to way to go. I'd like to open it up to questions from the audience. Uh, yes, question from Remy. Hi, Hope. Uh, <clears throat> have you assessed the uh, the nature and number of GAT sixty five epitope that are presented on the off free DQ two relative to other haplotypes? We haven't done it as a company, uh, and I, I'm probably not the person to ask how well that has been done by others, but I believe, I mean, there's obviously, I know that there's research done that which parts of the GAD are like more the responsible for the autoimmune, for example, which if you want to create peptides, we use the whole recombinant protein, so we, we don't make any assumptions on which part of the protein is most important. Uh, therapeutically, for example, while other people, at least on the insulin side, when using antigen, create like uh, uh, peptides to try to find the most reactive peptides, for example. So, but we allow the 
body to process as it wants and present all the different variants. But I know that there are certain parts of the GAD which are more associated, for example, to, uh, to the autoimmune response. So you have a truncated GAD as well, which is associated to other forms. So it's, it's quite complex. Uh, but it seems, at least in our data, so when we look at the clinical data, that if you are DF3, DQ2, if you carry that haplotype and we treat with GAD, then you seem to respond. And then we also see, which I didn't show, that there's a potential super responder group. If you simultaneously don't carry the DR4, DQ8 haplotype, the other risk, which is more associated with insulin autoimmunity, you seem to respond even better, which might make sense if you have a more pure GAD autoimmune disease. Uh, uh, so they seem to respond even better. What percent of all patients are these super responders? So uh, if, uh, at least in the Western world, again, where we have most of the data, we know that it's up to 40% are carry the DR3-DQ2 and half of them uh, do not carry the other haplotype. So it's about 50% uh, of our responders are potential super responders. But you say it's specifically the DR4DQ8 people who have who don't have it that respond better, right? So the other haplotype don't seem to have the same effect. So do you think that epitopes presented on DR4DQ8 could have a negative impact? Uh, well, we haven't seen any evidence that there is a negative, like as a, on a group level, we don't see an effect in, in individuals who don't carry DR3-DQ2. Uh, we don't, we haven't found, we haven't really looked, but we don't see any evidence that there's a negative, like that we would uh, make the disease worse, which always could be a possibility, obviously, that you, but we haven't seen that at least on a group level. But we, if you don't carry the DR4-DQ8, haplotype and carry the DR3-DQ2, then you seem to respond the best. But if you're heterozygous, you still seem to respond. Mm -hmm. But I think we are only scratching on the surface. I mean, HLA is so variable and we are looking at haplotype blocks, obviously. And in those blocks, you have a lot of variations as well, like SNPs and other things. That, so I think we will be able to explore this a lot in the future and in a so we are doing HLA sequencing now, both we have like a sub-study in the phase three uh, and HLA, like a genetic sub-study. So individuals who participate can also participate in this genetic study where we sequence their HLA. So we will have that data to really explore in the future to see if we can find super, super responders or if there are potential individuals who don't respond in this group and if there could be a dose responses effect as well, that maybe some boosters in the future could be used for some individuals. That's great. Is there anyone else here who'd like to ask a question? Oh, it, it's Elna again. I just wanted to say, Ulf, you might talk about that we do have the um, diagnosed, you know, booster B trial going on or some of the other things we're doing as well with Remagen and with Asset. Oh yeah, uh, I mean, regarding boosters, so we there was in this original pilot trial that evaluated intralymphatic injections, there were three individuals that received a fourth injection, like 32 months from baseline. Uh, at that time, we didn't know about the HLA, but later we uh, found out that those three individuals happened to have the right haplotype, and they actually started increasing in C-peptide uh, initially. And then one year later, they were at the same C-peptide levels they had a year before when they received the booster. So that's a very 
I mean, only three individuals, but still uh, like a proof of concept that maybe these boosters could at least prolong the effect uh, for a year or maybe longer. And this thing that they started increasing is e-peptide is quite intriguing. And maybe there could be hope in the future that you don't only halt the disease, maybe you could even turn the disease progression, which would be like the really the holy grail. And uh, now we, or Professor Johnny Ludwigson in Linköping University in collaboration with us, has started a follow-up booster study with a few more individuals who participated in these previous uh, trials. They will now receive a fourth or a fifth injection. And then we will see, can we kind of replicate those results and see if we get a bit more data to support the fact that boosters could prolong the, the effect. So that's ongoing, that's very exciting. And then we have, we are also going into the prevention field now. We've done it previously with subcutaneous injections. Again, we didn't know about the HLA back in those days. We reanalyzed those results and they seem to support the same HLA hypothesis that if you, if a healthy individual at risk for type one is carrying the right haplotype, they seem to respond. So you prolong the time to diagnosis. And we will start a small pilot trial later this year in in the genetically defined uh, population with intralymphatic injections now in stage one, stage two individuals. And then the, the ambition is to, after this small pilot trial or in parallel, start the pivotal trial, also a prevention trial. Uh, so that's a lot ongoing. And also LADA, as you may know, this like older type ones or autoimmune type two diabetics. There was uh, quite recently, a small pilot trial was finalized, uh, which looks was open label, no placebo, but it looks very promising as well. And the ambition is there obviously also to evaluate how we can take the vaccine to market in the LADA uh, population. And we also have a small molecule uh, based on GABA, which is in clinical trials as well. So a lot is happening. <laughs> yeah, it's extremely busy and that's all good news. What about, um? What about, you know, your recruitment, you know, how can you get sort of like recruit the most, the most people? I mean, you know, just sort of thinking just out of the box is, you know, when you have like a bone marrow registry, right, that really drills down on the people's um, HLA composition. I wonder if there's any, you know, people who are presenting with one autoantibody in that in that large crew that could be identified and, uh, mm. and treated. I mean, I know we have the, we have a big, with like 9 million in our, uh, in our bone marrow registry here in Minneapolis. I'm not in Minneapolis, but in the U S. Um, and, uh, that's been brought up to me before about how to really drill down on, uh, those that have these HLA, you know, um, mm -hmm. special, uh, HLAs that would be best suited by these types of approaches? Yeah, I think, well, that's very relevant when you start talking about stage one, stage two. So basically healthy individuals that don't uh, today, I mean, they have no reason to visit their uh, uh, private practitioners or like uh, the, the medical doctor. So how do you actually find these individuals, which is, uh -huh. uh, I know, prevention bio, obviously, which might very well get um, approval now quite soon. Let's hope. I might Thankfully, think that will be fantastic yes. for the whole field and it will open up. I mean, it will be, I think, great for all the development as well because then you remove a lot of the unknowns when it comes to 
payers and uh, regulatory issues, everything like this, which it will be a great thing for the whole field. But I think the problem there obviously is in prevention. Well, how do you find individuals who don't are basically healthy? So mm -hmm. you need to have some kind of a screening system in place. Yeah. And I believe there will be eventually, and we are working on that here. We have a uh, uh, a project in Sweden that is supported partly by the Swedish government to look into potentials, what a screening system would look like. And obviously we'll need to have a good risk prediction algorithm in place and preventive tools as well. It's not enough to find at-risk individuals. You need to be able to treat them preventively, at least for a social healthcare system like Swedish, where you have taxpayers who pay for it. You need to show that the health economics makes sense. So we are looking into that. I know that GDRF is looking into it and like provincial bias looking into it. So, and I believe, I've heard that Israel has some kind of screening system in place already and Slovenia is looking into it. So there will be in a, eventually there will be screening for type one, most likely you will also have at the same time celiac disease, autoimmune thyroiditis as they are quite uh, like they uh, associated with each. Yeah. yeah. And I think it would make sense to have some kind of a general maybe risk score, autoimmune score, because if you like just do HLA uh, sequencing, you will have at least a baseline uh, risk score for autoimmunity. Yeah. HLA is uh, so yeah. first pass, and then you have yeah. to add the rest of the criteria. Exactly. And then it would most likely be like on a voluntary basis, you're recommended if you would like to like participate in a screening program, you are invited. And then it's like once every year or something like this. And uh, but that's yeah, something we're looking into. Oh, that's great. Uh, I had a question from a Canadian researcher. Is there an interaction with TrialNet uh, slash SickKids who is screening people for markers? Uh, so we right now we don't we don't have a, a, a trial or any collaboration with trial we've had previously and I, I know we are in contact with trial and so we definitely want to move ahead and also with Inodia in, in in Europe and all these consortium I think it's important that all these consortium all Dia Union which we have like in the south of Sweden and Denmark like everyone joins forces because it's uh, I think it will happen but we need to do it as a united front and not build sort of isolated islands uh, that we can rather learn from each other. But it's, uh, so we are really moving. We have like, as a commercial company, obviously we have an interest to make sure that our therapeutic vaccine goes all the way to market, both in prevention and intervention. Uh, but I also understand that when we collaborate with all these fantastic PIs, they don't have the same commercial interest as uh, they, we have exactly in our therapeutic, but they want to advance the field. So we are very pragmatic in how we how we collaborate and like want to advance the whole type one diabetes field and not only think about our isolated case here. So, but- uh, Well, but a rising, uh, a rising yeah. tide uh, lifts oh, all yeah. boats, right? Oh yeah, Defin definitely. Oh. And um, and and you guys seem to be definitely on the crest of that uh, GAD vaccine wave. So this is just wonderful news. Um, I, I'd like to invite a couple more questions if people are out there. Um, huge, huge fan of your work, of um, you and the team at, at Diamed. Um, realistically speaking, um, what does your? I know this is a huge question, but what does your time to market um, look like for for the U.S.? Thank you, Ben. So yeah, yeah, great question. So the what, like I said in my presentation, we have a confirmatory phase three ongoing now, which we also want to start in the US. 
the aim is to launch like I think any drug development company wants to launch in the US and Europe at the same time if possible but US is commercially the most important market uh, so it's definitely very high priority for us and uh, given that we are going for a genetic subpopulation of type 1, so it's we already have orphaning in the US for recent onset type 1, but that's all. Now we are going for a genetic subgroup. So it's, uh, it's it would be very tough for us to do two highly high power, statistically powered phase 3 trials, which is the norm in drug development normally. But now we're going for a very small subpopulation with the precision medicine thing. So our ambition and wish and what we're working for is that this diagnosed free trial will provide the data to also launch in the US. And the data are expected if recruitment goes according to plan and everything, we will get the, the 24 month data in 2026. So we have a total of 330 individuals we are recruiting. Uh, so then best case scenario would be that uh, obviously best case scenario is that there would be an accelerated approval before that and then you sort of uh, complete the package with the 24 month data but otherwise it would be late 2026 or 27 that we are would be on market uh, so that's the the, the the plan good thank you so much okay last call wanted to see if anyone has any other questions just saying hi and thank you all for a nice talk. Ah, hi, Matthias. <laughs> I missed you in Armenia. <laughs> I know that turned out way too difficult this summer with all the flight stuff and things like that. We, we are now thinking about going next year, end of May. That's the target date. Good. And so now everyone is welcome to Armenia next year in May then. <laughs> Okay. Or uh, I understand, well, obviously the EASD is coming up in September 19 to 23 at, in Stockholm. Yes. So another Please come there. Yeah, we will have a booth there as well. So it was a long time ago since Diamond Medical had a booth, but now we have a booth. Uh, so you are all very welcome to EASD in Stockholm. And we will try to host you as best as we can. Yes, I was just going to say the same thing. Any of you who are listening who are coming to EASD, please come visit us. It's a beautiful city. And so with that, um, thank you all for joining us. Um, thank you, uh, Ophanelius and uh, um, Elna, for presenting the what's uh, going on, what's new. And I guess I'm going to try to attempt this. Taxa Mikat. Barsa good. <laughs> okay. I'm, I'm sure that was a terrible pronunciation. No, it was fantastic. <laughs> Thanks yeah. again and have a Thank great you. rest of your day. Bye bye. Thank you. Bye -bye.